when we think about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we really should be thinking about our biggest number, our biggest population are school-aged, primary or high school. So when you design systems or research or curriculum, then let's picture these young people because they're our leaders of the future. And if we get it right for them, we're going to get it right for all of our futures. Welcome to Talking Health, a podcast where we explore the big health issues facing our communities. On this podcast, you'll hear from some of the world's leading health researchers, community organisations and people with lived experiences about the advancements we're making in health to transform the well-being of our communities at each stage of life. I'm Professor Deborah Anderson, the Dean of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, UTS and the founder and director of the Women's Wellness Research Collaborative. I've spent my career dedicated to supporting people and particularly women after cancer to implement sustainable lifestyle changes to get the most out of life. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Professor Megan Williams, a Wiradjuri woman and the Associate Dean Indigenous at the University of Technology, Sydney. Megan has worked for more than two decades advocating for the use of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's expertise in health service design and evaluation, research, ethics and university curriculum, especially to improve access to healthcare for people in prisons and to prevent incarceration. Welcome Megan and thank you so much for joining me on Talking Health today. Thanks Debbie. Megan, can you tell us a little bit about Wiradjuri country, where you grew up and some memories from your childhood. Yes, sure. Wiradjuri country is one of the largest areas, maybe not the largest population or nation group of Aboriginal people, but certainly one of the largest land areas that we recognise today. And maybe in the past that was different pre-colonisation. Wiradjuri country, you get there, say if you're in Warang, Sydney, here on Gadigal land where I am today, then we'd head west through Darag country and Gundungurra across the Blue Mountains. And then when you head down Mount Victoria, Victoria Pass, the country opens out wide and that's the beginning of Wiradjuri country and it extends from Lithgow all the way out beyond Griffith in western New South Wales and the Wallamai National Park and then also all the way down through Cowra and on the way south from there. So it's a really large nation. And my family are northeast Wiradjuri country, Aboriginal family born around the Mudgee area and also my hometown that I currently spend a lot of time in is Candos, 60 kilometres from Mudgee. So I'm there around the beautiful Kapiti Valley and the Wollamai National Park, as well as that town. And it has a really strong Wiradjuri presence. The main street has the Wiradjuri Whalen uh, Cultural Centre and a number of activities across Wiradjuri country as well. So it's uh, phenomenal to be part of that continuing of the past and the knowledges of the past into the present. And and I'm someone, you know, from a really mixed background, Aboriginal on dad's side, and that's that William's surname that extends um, back as far as we can 
find post-colonisation. And interestingly, prison comes into that, which I can talk more about later, and then English on my mother's side and British Army too. And from understanding both sides of the family history, alcoholism and institutions are a great leveller between the rich and poor and also have profound negative influences on people's current lives now. So much of my work in public health and criminal justice systems very much been shaped by my family background and seeking to understand both the impacts of colonisation and institutionalisation now, but also continuing knowledges specifically about Aboriginal people's caregiving from the past and my real fascination for and need for extended family and belonging to a community as well. Yeah, so they've been really separate families. I've literally grown up black and white, you know, but with a really strong Aboriginal identity and yeah, so much that we have got intact and that we've been able to continue to carry forward to our next generations. Very interesting. Now, you told me you had a history teacher in high school that really shaped your career and life's vision and purpose in a way. Can you tell us more about this formative moment in your life? Coming from uh, family breakdown and zigzagging around living in different places with um, particularly our mother and uh, we ended up, my brother and I ended up on the Gold Coast for high school. You know, I was into poetry. We'd been living in Mudgee and that was a big sporting high school. There was maybe half a dozen of us in the debating team and poetry society. Also, my brother and I were sent to many Pam Tamblin grooming and deportment courses as well. Uh, poor mother trying to literally, as she would say, beat the bush out of us. And me at that school, you know, already with such a strong sense of how family breakdown and hospitals, prisons had shaped our family life. You know, there was no way I was going to just get on and be a cheerleader at Gold Coast High School. And I was very lucky to have a modern history teacher who introduced us to the concepts of democracy and socialism. Also, his wife was Indigenous in the South Pacific. And it was at that time that the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody recommendations were handed down in April of that year, 1991, um, and I was in grade 12. So he was open enough to really carry a group of us pretty vulnerable young people through what that Royal Commission was for and what its content was about, you know, horrendous, and also the recommendations. And so that really struck a chord with me that there could be recommendations about how to make improvements, a set of instructions for many levels of our society to make improvements. And that led me to apply to do a social science degree majoring in human services with some human rights subjects. And then there was to be a a stream of a major in Indigenous studies. And so I'd applied to do that. And then it was really on, on day one, the big introduction of all the students that the head of school, I'm assuming it was, said that we're sorry, we've had to cancel the Indigenous major. We couldn't find any staff to run it. And so if you want to learn about Indigenous people, do the youth studies stream. In the youth study stream, you'll focus on juvenile detention and that's where you'll learn about Indigenous peoples. 
and you know me as a young person I've just turned 17 starting uni I was so offended and also the disbelief at not being able to do what I wanted to study so I thought then and there I'm going to come back and teach that course one day which I never did but I've kept in touch with that um, youth studies lecturer all these years and he's had a near major imprint on my life as well and I've certainly taught you know many different subjects at uni but my fascination came to be with research and research methods and yeah so I do often think back to that real formative um, instruction at high school and also only in 2021 got to be one of the authors on a review of progress towards the Royal Commission recommendations and I just I guess had that confidence that I'd maintain an engagement with them for all those years and knew how to find data and um, information to critique the extent to which we've met them and at the moment I participate in a New South Wales government review of deaths in custody. I didn't think that my family would be affected. You know, fast forward um, to 2001 from me being that high school student to 2001 and one of my own Williams, one of my own Williams cousins died in a large correctional centre in Queensland and it had been one that I'd worked in and that I'd been part of trying to get programs for Aboriginal people happening as well. So I think that sort of added to the shock and it was at that point that I thought I'm going to really, I remember thinking, put my foot to the pedal and hone my research skills and enrol in a PhD, really specifically understanding Aboriginal people's leadership in criminal justice system, particularly for self-determining ways forward. And really from a public health lens, that was very determined of me from a public health lens rather than a law and criminology lens. There's so much that public health has to offer to the criminal justice system with our complex understandings of well-being and the systems reforms that we need, not only individual health behaviour change, but, you know, services and system and policy and legislation change as well. So this, I've got so much energy for that. I don't get demoralised or depressed by it um, because I think that Aboriginal people have just so much to offer in this space. And we're so grateful to your teachers and that university lecturer who were able to steer you into this direction where you now have such a great influence in Indigenous wellbeing and health in that area. Megan, I know you and others use the phrase put first peoples first. What are the benefits do you think of putting first peoples first and how do we do that and what do people need to do to support them in doing this? such a great phrase it just automatically it's so visual putting first peoples first and first peoples is that I suppose term used internationally too but um, increasingly in Australia not only Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or Indigenous and um, yeah first peoples first really means not retrofitting the amount of times I've been involved in things being retrofitted or Indigenous peoples being an add-on. And that happens in my life every single week, really, whether that's 
us as Indigenous peoples being added on to an agenda. You know, and I've literally had invites recently, one that said, we forgot that we've got refugees and women on the agenda and for diversity, we should have Indigenous people too. So we need you to come to the meeting. Could you come? And, and being given just a couple of days notice and chunky meetings and having no presence on the agenda but being expected just to be a participant. So, you know, that's one recent experience. And it's hurtful. Often and mostly I try to see these things as an opportunity and I try to think back to my own family members who haven't had that type of invitation or seat at the table. And also that policies in Australia sought to deliberately discriminate and exclude Indigenous peoples, you know, only in the last sort of 40 or so years that there's even been the right to be counted as a citizen and have the right to vote. So, you know, I often do think about that and try to have a bit of grace and try to front up and take responsibility for the options and resources I've got now to be able to participate, but it's also exhausting. And it also doesn't really work to retrofit things. So that first people's first, it's really us asserting, if you get it right for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, you're going to get it right for everyone in this country. And there's a few reasons why. One of them is because what we're saying and advocating for in our experience is that what we do is right for this country, meaning this environment, this actual country, you know, the birds and the trees and the weather and the way information flows because our cultures are attuned to this country and we tune in and try to understand what's right for this country. And our cultures are premised on us being responsible for our own country. So you get it right for this country and that's just so critical at this time of climate crisis and people really searching for answers about disastrous climate situations. And so also putting first peoples first and getting it right for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people is important from a health equity or inequity perspective because we are in all of the data on the worst health outcomes and worst social determinants of health of any population uh, in this country and, and even the world. And so when you attune strategies to address inequity for our people, then others who experience those inequities will also be assisted. And so then we've got policy statements that are about Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people self-determining. So that means we need a seat at the table of voices um, that are equal to and are timed right with the same as everybody else, not added on at the end. We're a minority population. And the thing is that our population median age is only 23 compared to 38 about of the mainstream Australian population. So we have a really different looking population pyramid. And the times I say, oh, we tried to invite you and no one could come, or we sent you an invitation, um, you know, and, and the reasons people give for why we're not included first or included at all um, can also be really hurtful. And they don't meet our population pyramid look or needs um, because really we need to be designing systems that are for young people, 
you know, we, when we think about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we really should be thinking about our biggest number, our biggest population are school-aged, primary or high school. So when you design systems or research or curriculum, then let's picture these young people because they're our leaders of the future. And if we get it right for them, we're going to get it right for all of our futures. That's just so different to mainstream public health, which really arguably is used to designing systems for an ageing population and an Anglo-ageing population, which leaves off many other cultures and their protocols and features of their cultures that could just be so interesting and valuable for how we do business in the future. Yeah, so that putting first peoples first, you know, often it's one of the first times people have thought like that. They think that because we're a minority population, you can just do a minority bit of work to add us on at the end. And I do find each and every week in my profession, professional life and personal life, that we're not really actually believed. And I've had people say recently that Aboriginal people are so sick, like it your models of care mustn't work. So we need you to come to the hospital and access the hospitals more rather than what we argue is that we need our community controlled health organisations funded equitably, funded to meet need, funded to close gaps, structured to close gaps, which our biggest take on the gap is actually the mainstream workforce cultural capability and people being so scared to say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing that they can't include us first because they don't have the relationships and they don't know how. And then in a kind of twisted way, we're kind of blamed for that because the structures aren't put in place to um, both listen to us and train that mainstream workforce. Yeah, so that's that sort of the gap that we're constantly grappling with. And, um, and, you know, it is heartbreaking because we believe that our knowledges are so highly structured and considered and that they are evidence-based. We just view evidence across time longitudinally, not only between and within populations, but across time and, and the amount of times people say, but there's no evidence of effectiveness, you know, and, and I think that that just belies people's own intelligence about what evidence is, what knowledges are and how knowledges are constructed. So you can see there's so much to be able to talk about. And, uh, and it's really interesting, you know, Megan, when you're talking about, you know, all the firsts that you've done in this space, And you're our first Associate Dean Indigenous for the Faculty of Health at UTS. So, you know, you're just having to trailblaze after trailblaze after trailblaze. So we're so grateful you've got that energy to be able to continue and also hopefully the support that UTS and the Faculty of Health can give you as you trailblaze through. Megan, you've spent the past two decades dedicated to improving the access to healthcare for Indigenous people in prison and to prevent incarceration. Can you tell me a little bit more about your work over the past 20 years in this particular space? Yeah, I came to this because after that social science degree and majoring in youth services, I really took an interest at right at that crossroads of justice and health. And I think those early experiences of seeing how young people in a criminal justice system just 
didn't have access to the types of healthcare that they needed and certainly not the sort of emotional support and mental development support, let alone actual physical health, meeting physical health needs. But I took a health promotion job in community sector and I had to go to Gold Coast nightclubs with a sort of six or seven foot person in a condom suit and it was horrible. I didn't like it at all had a little basket that I handed out, condom packs. And, you know, as I said earlier, I was in the debating team and into poetry. And one day my boss said to me, "Um, I've got a surprise for you. And I said, oh, no, not another nightclub I have to go to. And he said, no, we've never met as big a nerd as you. We're going to send you on a research training course. Only it wasn't (laughs) at a university. It was in, yeah. So he said, you're you're going to be better at writing about these things and helping structure and evaluate. So I was so blessed. And I think about him every single day. He passed on from HIV AIDS, as, as did many people. And we were setting up some of the first needle and syringe programs on the Gold Coast at at that time and was the end of the Joe era and when hep C funding became available and that led us to doing some workshops and resource development among people in prison. And what I was astounded by was that people in prison would come to our the needle exchange they weren't using anymore but they just they needed support and we were some of the safest people for them to come to and that real clanging of you know you come to this place that it's got all kinds of triggers for you and that we're some of the only people that that are sort of understanding and and partly that's because all of our own families had drug and alcohol issues and incarceration as well and so that meant that I could work within the community sector doing evaluation and research and action research so it was just such a fantastic start to research work and I continue to use many of those same methods and processes now and it's handy because the National Health and Medical Research Council's guidelines about Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health are very much that the community set the priorities for research and the parameters as well and have um, equal say in how the research is designed and conducted and that it's not to be researcher-led and that I know from my experiences with the Cooperative Research Centre for Aboriginal Health, which became, in a short story, the Lowich Institute, our National Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Health Research Institute, you know, that knowledge exchanges to occur right throughout research and that knowledge translation actually drives the shape of research. So that's another example of why we think in, as Aboriginal health researchers, we're actually top quality because we see universities and health departments scramble and host events and sessions on how to translate research and how to engage the community in research. And those the things are stock standard for us and we do not get away with doing research that's not informed by those things so some of the work that I do is always tied into service delivery and one of them is a medical research futures funded project with Queensland Health Child and Youth Mental Health Brisbane Youth Detention Centre and a really diverse multidisciplinary team where we're designing not only a model of care for young people in detention in Queensland but a, a model of service and that includes how what's the shape of the workforce the mainstream workforce and 
also how these things to be funded and evaluated in the future. And it's an action research project. So I think that's just such a great use of research funding. And I say all of this, even though I'm an abolitionist, I'm here to help improve how health services are occurring in prison and the availability and accessibility of those. But I believe that people ought to be in the community with support and recovering from the reasons that they've ended up in the prison time and time again. The um, data and people's stories tell us among Aboriginal people in prison, they have multiple compounding health issues that existed from childhood and that there's the same determinants of poor health and wellbeing as there are crime, particularly child removal. And that for us is a legacy of the stolen generations and government policy and that interruption by governments and institutions in every generation in our families and the way individuals blame themselves when they end up in prison and they think that they can do something to change their behaviour individually and they won't end up in prison again. That's part of the picture and that's the beauty of public health's socio-ecological model the multi-level empowerment that we require that yes individuals you know need to be well and that's physical mental social emotional spiritual wellness that individuals who've been incarcerated need a lot of care for you know i'm on the australian institute of health and welfare's national prison data collection group and on the one hand, that data can be used to say that people in prison see an improvement in their health care access and people then assume people might experience better health. But we only collect a slice of data at a slice point in time. We don't ask nuanced questions from Aboriginal perspective about access to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander community-controlled health organisations programs and we don't ask questions about spiritual wellbeing, spirituality in that national data set. So, you know, it's definitely something that keeps me motivated is really pushing to have better evidence from Aboriginal perspective in those national data collections because we do see that those are how decisions are made and you know we've got international human rights instruments that say people in prison have the right to the same level of health care in prison as they do in the community and we do not see that there's absolutely no way for aboriginal torres strait islander people that they can experience that because aboriginal community controlled health organizations are not funded one or two services in new south wales might be funded i'd say there's real risks with the level of underfunding for those organizations and that they don't meet need they're not projected to meet future need and they're not funded to develop to meet future need and also we've got an issue with people in prison not having access to medicare occasionally people can use medicare to access some types of health but not in any routine mechanized way and there's no mechanism additionally for Aboriginal community controlled health organisations to be funded. And part of that is because of the jurisdictional divide between the federal government funding Aboriginal health services 
but states funding prisons and states funding prison health services. So, you know, we, we've been advocating groups of us for two decades, in my experience, um, about both access to Medicare and access to funding at state and at national levels for community-controlled health organisations to in-reach into prisons at the very least. The Royal Commission says that in places where Aboriginal people are overrepresented in prisons, and there's a local Aboriginal community controlled health organisation, that organisation should run the prison health service. Makes total sense in the Northern Territory. It's around 80% of people in prison are Aboriginal Torres Strait Island people. And they've had a Aboriginal prison health like strategy, but you'd think that the whole prison health orientation would be for and by Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah, so there's plenty of work to do. You know, that's at the systems level and and then more at the individual level. I've had the great privilege of working and being involved in some inquests into Aboriginal people's deaths in custody, including in New South Wales, Kevin Bugme, with the report by the New South Wales coroner only being released this year. And at that, I'd written a expert report and taken the stand and been questioned by the coroner. And at that, the family also asked me, would I read their family impact statement, which was unusual for, you know, an independent person to do, but the coroner gave permission for that. And so here's me, you know, that grade 12 girl I thought about and what my family had been through reading their family impact statement. Aboriginal family and in that was some of Kevin's own words too but I just felt so strong in that time and it was so purposeful and you know to I think ultimately put my skills and privileges especially education to the test and to the to use for that family and then also more recently in a really interesting process for Victorian coroner as part of a medical conclave where it was me and maybe a dozen other people who'd written reports for the inquest of Veronica Nelson who died in Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, horrendous circumstances. And so the other participants in that medical conclave were you know, people who ran hospitals and departments. And I suppose for me to be saying a lot of these things, first people's first and um, using the Royal Commission recommendations and bringing that knowledge about community controlled health organisations to the table, you know, some things that some of those people thought would influence how they carried out things in the future. And so it just brings me to curriculum as well. You know, obviously there's so much at my fingertips and colleagues' fingertips for curriculum in our faculty. Wow, what a powerful area of research that you're working in. You've mentioned education and curriculum is a way we can start to proactively change the possibilities of what the future health workforce might be able to achieve. Can you tell me about what's on offer in Indigenous health at UTS? The words vertical and horizontal come to mind, you know, again, that visual cue that often keeps me going. We've got a new, brand new major in Indigenous Health in the Bachelor of Health Science. And two of those subjects have been run so far with two new ones still to come. And that's not about 
channeling Indigenous people into an Indigenous health major. It's there for everyone and it's great to see students know that they can have a future working in Indigenous health services, for example, even though they're not Indigenous. So by us having a core subject in the Bachelor of Health Science too is a way we can promote that. Indigenous health is everybody's business and it's attached to this country and how you be in this country and that there's so much to learn from Indigenous peoples for mainstream public health and health science. So hopefully we'll see that grow over coming years. But we also do have a faculty Indigenous student liaison officer, Danielle Manton, at present, and uh, strategies to support Indigenous students, whether they're undergrad or postgrad or also research higher degree students. And so we do have a Master of Indigenous Health by Research and PhD program as well. And so that's a sort of our acrossways, but we also work and contribute to others' curriculum. And we have a bit of a traffic light system, so we understand almost every subject across the faculty and what it's got in it about the health and well-being of Indigenous peoples, whether that's a bit of curriculum or assessment. I mean, ideally, we'd like to see that alignment between curriculum and assessment and student outcomes and trying to really get beyond Indigenous peoples, guesting, guest lecturing in, but um, having those mainstream staff really confident about what their knowledge is and what their involvement's been with Indigenous peoples. And if it, if they haven't had any, then that that's a really important story for students as well, because chances are students are going to experience that. And so we really encourage staff to share their own learning journeys of how they're coming to understand both the history of colonisation and the impacts of that on healthcare and health systems and on curriculum. And there's something that's an honesty in that. And I think hopefully staff find that's quite reassuring for them. And it's reassuring for them because they know they're sort of not burdening us. The amount of times our colleagues say, oh, we wanted your input, but we also know how busy you are too. And that's when we reorient things, just, you know, get your story into this as well, because students really look to their own lecturers and not to guess think too. So we try to also have partnerships with Aboriginal community organisations and, and help develop curriculum using their experiences and also their needs and, and tying student assessment to meeting the needs of Aboriginal community organisations. That's something I've done lots over the many years I've been involved in teaching and learning. And students love that because they see that they're effort put into assessments has a real world impact and you can see meeting both needs, elders' needs and student needs um, at the one time. So there's, yeah, plenty more scope for that under development. Thanks, Megan. And I'm so excited as the Dean of Health to see all of this development in Indigenous health occurring across our faculty. Could you just confirm for me, so we've got an Indigenous health subject that's embedded in the Bachelor of Health Science. Mm. Is there an opportunity for us to embed that across the other health professional courses? So we've got health professionals going out mm. with that knowledge of Indigenous health before they enter the work stream. Are we working in that? 
Yeah, and especially at um, postgraduate level as well, because often those students are already in, in health professions and and so the Graduate School of Health, much of their work being postgraduate, working with staff across those health professions, and then the Master of Public Health and that online offering there, you know, I think there's a lot of scope with that too. And in the past, I've worked on that cohort models, taking a group of Aboriginal students from a community-controlled health organisation through a postgraduate degree as a group and arranging tutoring and support and assignment topics that met their needs and seeing them through to graduation. So, yeah, also thinking about those options too, building that the cultural capabilities, if possible, of all students coming through and our Aboriginal health workforce especially, what can we offer them? Yeah, what a great vision and I hope that we uh, continue to aim for that. Megan, in addition to your work with UTS, which is enormous, you also hold a number of committee and board positions, so including as chair of Crokey Health Media. Can you tell us a little bit about Crokey and your goals as chair there? Crokey's um, my involvement such a bright spot in my life and I first became involved through the Just Justice crowdfunded journalism project. Crokey is an independent health media company with a specific focus on public health and its chief editor, Dr Melissa Sweet, uh, has had a long history working in mainstream media and about health and public health. And, you know, she has a doctorate in media and public health and has Crokey has focused on both media as a determinant of health of Indigenous peoples, as well as conveying the voices and expertise of Indigenous peoples through Crokey Health Media. And I, so I became involved in Just Justice as a crowdfunded campaign and together over about 12 months, we produced around 90 articles from about 70 authors and about half the authors, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, about strategies to reduce incarceration of Indigenous peoples and provide health care and health and wellbeing care in prison and post-prison release as well, and other work to prevent people going to custody. So, yeah, for me and where I'd come from in my work to engage in that, you know, I'd done similar what stories uh, in the past even including for my PhD, you know, one round of data collection was individual stories that went to all people in prison in Queensland at the time. And then another round of my PhD interviews were stories of service providers that went to a whole heap of parliamentarians as well as service providers. And so that was kind of familiar to me, you know, being active in research translation. What I didn't realise was how different writing for the media is compared to, you know, academic or research translation. And so I was invited to contribute a couple of articles to Just Justice, but my first one, I look back at what an expensive article it would have been. It took me so long. I could easily write a few thousand words, but for me to write 800 and permission myself to put the answer first and, you know, have an opinion, I ended up ringing Melissa Sweet and saying, look, I, I'd never met her. Look, I, I don't think I can do it. It's, it's you know, not possible. 
and then I for some somehow just came up can I come to your house and can you show me how to do it and and so I did I was able to get an absolute masterclass in writing and um, now I kind of think journalistically I think and so my involvement at you know for me personally within Crokey's helped me to be a much better communicator and strategizer and thinker and and encourage other people to engage in research translation as well as that bigger commitment to you know the mainstream media as a determinant of the health and well-being of Indigenous peoples, circling back around to incarceration too, and that tough on crime approach that's promulgated in the mainstream media and the lack of our voices about preventing incarceration and all of our strategies in the mainstream media. So that was just a really proactive way to have a voice and with support. And then also misinformation and disinformation had sort of been on the agenda then about incarceration. Little did we ever think that there would be a pandemic. And, you know, here I am among some of Australia's most experienced public health writers and journalists who really never dreamed of their, or not that you'd ever dream of a pandemic, but thought that we would all be actively involved in in journalism in the context of, of a pandemic. And it has been absolutely huge for Crokey. You know, Crokey's are funded by a consortium model and it really began um, as a the health page of Crikey several years ago that Melissa contributed to in the midst of the total collapse of the model of journalism in Australia and the Western world. And Melissa's work with Crikey, I think it really kept expanding and that autonomy and independence was needed. And the consortium model came up really auspiced by the Public Health Association of Australia and, and their real leadership and support to ask public health schools around the country and other in interested institutions to each contribute funding to pay for this independent health journalism, both as, again, as a determinant of health and also a way to address misinformation and disinformation and for public health to have a voice and try to shape our future of the health system and our society in Australia. So we still rely on the contributions and consortium payments of, you know, usually it's only around 12 members. Our website, Crokey Health Media website, is absolutely outstanding, belies how much money we don't have looks way more professional compared to the tiny yeah. amount of money that we've got. And, you know, Girama, our Indigenous health discipline in the faculty, is our consortium member on behalf of our faculty and the School of Public Health and also actively contribute. And ironically, right when Crokey, the need for Crokey and Crokey's outputs increased, of course, universities experience that retraction within COVID and flat budgets that have meant we haven't been able to really meet our growth too. So, so for me personally and professionally, it's been really interesting from governance perspective, how to sort of be involved in navigating that. And yeah, it's just many hands involved in that. And I do really encourage people it's um, independent journalism just has such a key place and in public health for students to say cut through the vast amount of information that's out there about health issues and go to a source right who 
who, what's the latest being said by someone in the field that's supported by journalists to have a clear say. And Croaky also has a podcast series, Croaky Voices. And one of my absolute favourites is pre-pandemic Croaky Go, walking as an act of journalism to engage with communities and walk and talk and do journalistic stories from that. And that really resonates from Aboriginal perspective with our walking on country, you know, so embedded in what we do. Yeah, so many benefits of being involved with Croaky Health Media. Look, Megan, thank you for being my guest on Talking Health today and for sharing your story and insights with us. It's been such an interesting and important conversation and such a powerful, strong woman you are. We are so fortunate to have you at uh, UTS. Today I've been speaking with Professor Megan Williams, a Wiradjuri woman and the Associate Dean Indigenous at the University of Technology, Sydney. You've been listening to Talking Health by the University of Technology, Sydney. You can find us at uts.edu.au. If you'd like to check out Crokey Health Media, head to croakey, C-R-O-A-K-E-Y.org.